There was a woman in a Houston airport who had some time before her flight, and she went to a concession stand there and picked up coffee and a bag of cookies. And she sat down in the eating area, and she opened a newspaper, the old-fashioned kind that was actually made of paper. And she opened it, began to read it, and in a moment she heard the crinkling of her bag of cookies. And she lowered it, and a man had reached into the bag of cookies and was eating them. She put up the paper real quick and wondered, what is going on? And then she heard the crinkle again, and she dropped her paper and looked with horror and shock on her face at him. And so she reached out and grabbed the cookie and ate it and put the paper back up and was bewildered, couldn't pay attention to any of the words on the paper. And... In a moment, she heard the crinkle again, and she snapped the paper down, shot a vicious look at him, and he shot one back at her. And so she grabbed another cookie, and he grabbed another cookie. She put the paper back up and heard a crinkle again and put the paper down, and there was one cookie left, which in our home is dangerous territory, but she took... He took the cookie and snapped it in half and looked at her exasperated, popped half in her mouth and left the other half there. Well, she was terribly offended. She crumpled the paper up, threw it away, walked on towards her gate, reached in to get her ticket and found her bag of cookies. She made some pretty self-righteous assumptions, didn't she? It is a good thing to follow Jesus, but you have to understand, because of the human soul, it can be very, very dangerous if we're merely religious. And this is what Jesus spells out in Mark chapter 7. In fact, Chuck Colson, before his death, said that through the centuries... It's not been the world that has really been much of a problem for God or His churches. He said, God's biggest headache has been religion. And I think you can make a good case for that historically. I don't want to come across as someone who's anti-traditional. The older I get, the more I appreciate these things. And the Bible does use the word tradition and religion in a positive sense. It can use it also in a negative sense. And in Mark chapter 7... The use of these terms here are devastatingly negative. This is not a comfortable text at all. It's illustrated, however, by one church planner out west who was going through his large city to look at churches to see what they were doing to reach their communities for Christ. And he happened in to one church with blue jeans and a t-shirt on and a ball cap on. And he didn't realize it, but when he showed up, The pastor in the pulpit was known in that city for engaging in outward proud sexual immorality. No fooling, no kidding. It was known and they declared that this form of sexual immorality was perfectly acceptable and blessed of God. And he walked in with his ball cap on and an usher told him to remove his hat. And he said, you do better to remove the pastor. There was a grotesque confusion over what is appropriate and what is not, what is righteous 
and what is not. Unless you think that that is an extreme example, I've seen something similar happen. And I'll share that in just a moment. Jesus is dealing with people here in Mark chapter 7 who are much the same as the person I just described. They have uh, oral tradition. They did not write it down until after Jesus left, but they were very intense about keeping their oral tradition spot on. They were very particular about repeating it and memorizing it exactly as it had been delivered. And that document became known after Jesus left the earth as the Mishnah. It's a lengthy document that commented on the religious practices of the people and what God expected to them. Now, it was not biblical. It was application of some traditional ideas. And the Pharisees and the scribes were so intense about what was appropriate as far as cleansing before engaging in worship that they devoted 186 pages to laws of that. And were terribly offended if anyone violated one of them. They devoted 35 pages to the daily washing of their eating utensils. In fact, if they would go to the market and they came in contact with Gentiles, non-Jews, they would come back and take a bath. So they might be washed up for worship, is what they did. One rabbi who failed to wash before a meal was excommunicated. Another rabbi was imprisoned by Rome in a Roman prison, and he nearly died of dehydration because instead of using his daily water ration to drink, he used it to wash his hands, to keep up with the religious ceremonies. Now again, these laws were not biblical, but they had a certain reason and rationale that was tight and made sense to many. And that is, to keep from avoiding the law, build a fence out from it, so that people don't cross that. If they do, then they've got some distance between them and a violation of the law. And so it began, I think, probably with some very good motives, but they developed hundreds and hundreds of pages reflecting these kinds of rules and laws about worship, about purity, and about contact with those who needed ministry. And these are the issues that are at stake in Mark chapter 7. Here Jesus exposed their errors and their errors in human thinking, human views, and human traditions. And he did that in three areas. One is worship, two is purity, and third is in ministry. Now worship is found in verses 1 through 13. And here, let me preview, Jesus, they asked a question and Jesus gave an answer. And he, his answer involves a biblical accusation from Isaiah. And his answer also involves a biblical illustration from Moses. Well, let's look at the question first in verses 1 through 5. It says here, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. And that's precisely what they are doing with Jesus at this stage. They are simply looking to find fault with Jesus. Their minds are made up. Don't confuse them with the truth. Jesus is not legitimate, and we're going to find fault with him. And so they travel all the way from Jerusalem to where he is as a religious Gestapo, as a God squad, to come after him. Well, this is 
uh, part of the issue here. And Mark gives an explanation for his Roman readers who aren't familiar with these things. He says in verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. Again, not the Bible, but the tradition of their elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things that they have received and hold, many other things which they have received and hold, like washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. And so Mark explains here precisely what it is they are concerned about. And in verse 4 he says, there are many other things they do. For those familiar with the Mishnah, it's mind-boggling how many steps they took to worship and how disciplined they were to keep these things. Now look at verse 5. The Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? They were offended because they were not observing the applications of their traditions that go back about 200 years in the intertestamental period to what people had applied to life in washing and worship and purity and ministry. But they eat bread with unwashed hands. Now, the Old Testament did teach the priests to wash their hands before they served in the temple. But it never applied that to the lay people. Well, they did. And so they were going beyond biblical boundaries, and they were terribly offended that those who came before him were dishonored by Jesus' disciples. Now, that's the question. But then Jesus goes on to the answer. And he first gives a biblical accusation from Isaiah and then a biblical illustration from Moses. His biblical accusation from Isaiah is not gentle at all. Look at verses 6 through 8. He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy, in Isaiah 29, 13, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. That means they appeared outwardly religious, but inside were full of sinfulness, mischief, and evil. And Jesus will elaborate on that in verses 18 through 23 in just a moment. And here's what Isaiah said, and Jesus is quoting the Old Testament from Isaiah 29, 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me in teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. There are five accusations Jesus levels against them in this text. One is hypocrisy in verse 6. They appeared to be disciplined and upright, but inside they were wicked and condemned by God. Verse 6, again, they are distant from God. It says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Publicly, other people thought they were the closest to God, but in reality, Jesus knew better. They were the furthest from him. And later, when Jesus goes to do his ministry among the Gentile areas, he finds two Gentiles that are closer to faith in the God of Israel than the Israelites were. His third accusation is vanity. And in vain they worship me. That means their worship does absolutely no good. Isaiah would say in Isaiah 1, your worship upsets my stomach. It's nauseous to me. Jesus would say of the Laodiceans in Revelation 3.15, I will spew thee out of my mouth. In vain they worship me. And then he um, says, 
they, they worship me in vain because of the content of their teaching. What fills their mind pollutes their worship. They teach as doctrines the commandments of men. They had elevated the word of men to the level of the word of God. And it gets worse in verse 8. He accuses them of negligence. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. So they are neglecting the word of God. Some of the rabbis taught it is a greater offense to violate the tradition of the elders than to contradict the scriptures, is what some said. And then he accuses them of being experts. Verse 9, he said to them, all too well, or one translation says, you are experts of setting aside the word of God and reject the commandment of God that you may keep your traditions. Beloved, not everything religious meets the approval of God. And we've got to get beyond the notion that it does. Not all religion is from God. Hey, let me ask you something. Can you quote Psalms 91 verses 10 through 12? Off the top of your head. Satan can He quoted it to Jesus in the wilderness when he was tempting him in Mark 4. He shall give his angels charge concerning you, lest you dash your foot against the stone. He abused and twisted Scripture. Beloved, Satan is intensely religious. Very religious. Not everything religious is from God. And Jesus here let, gives five accusations from Isaiah to prove that point. Then he gives an illustration of the enormous error in their religion, their traditions, their views, their opinions. Essentially, they had set aside the commandment of God and elevated the traditions of men, their own word, their own views, their own traditions above the word of God. And here is a stunning case in how. Beginning in verse 10. Now, there's some background to this. In Exodus 20, 12 and Exodus 21, 17, God commanded, honor your father and mother. And that implied that you would take care of them financially if you needed or if they needed. And that's the background to this beginning in verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you've handed down and many such things you do. This was not an exception. This was a pattern for this religious and traditional crowd. Now, what, what is korban? Well, korban was a word they would utter when they wanted to dedicate their financial resources to the temple. And once they made that vow, they applied, rather conveniently, Deuteronomy 30, that you do not break a vow to God. Well, the Ten Commandments say, honor your father and mother, which means, among many things, help them out financially if they need it in their older years after they work. But the Pharisees and scribes would take their possessions and declare them korban, dedicated to the temple. They could not revoke that, so they were prohibited by their religion to help their parents out. They could help their religion, they could help the temple, but here's the kicker. 
Once they dedicated something korban to the temple, they kept possession of it and used it as they wished. And what they gave to the temple was only what was left. Well, you see what happens here. If the Pharisee or scribe disapproves of his mother and daddy's life or they offend him, he just says korban and punishes them and uses all of his resources on himself. And so he enriches himself by disobeying the Word of God and elevates himself religiously. They use their religion to disobey God. And many other such things they did. Folks, I've got to tell you, their offspring are with us. Well, he goes on here in this text. And he clarifies for the crowd the issues here with the second issue besides worship, and that is purity. And he does that beginning in verse number 14. Here, he is emphatic in verse 14. He says, hear me, everyone, and understand. The word hear is first in the Greek text, and it is emphatic here. Hear me, everyone, and understand. In verse 16, he'll say, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. This is an emphatic statement because it is a persistent need. And it's verse 15. Verse 15 is the whole thesis of this. There are two parts to it. And the first part is elaborated upon in verses 18 to 19. The second part of his thesis in verse 15 is elaborated upon in verse 20 and 21. He says here, In verse 15, there is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him. He's speaking of food here, and that is entirely true. He elaborates upon that uh, because the disciples ask him, beginning in verse number 18, do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? So he restates his thesis, because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, and thus purifying all foods. And so Jesus put an end to the dietary restrictions of the Jews. They were finished. Their purpose was done. And he shifted to a new day, which made it possible for these Jewish apostles to become missionaries. You know anything about missionary service internationally? You're going to have a very interesting diet in some places. But to Jesus, it was far more important to be missionary than Jewish. It was far more important to be missionary than traditional And it was far more important to be missionary than it was to maintain your view and traditions of the ancestors. And and then he explains in verse 19, because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, thus eliminated and thus purifying all foods. Then he gives the second part of his thesis in verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, that's generally uh, envy, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And then he restates his thesis in verse 23. All these things come from within and defile a man. The reason that we're not right with God outside of Jesus Christ is not because what comes from the outside enters. It's because what we start with that is already there. 
and that is the heart. It's devastating, but this is what Jesus makes precisely clear in the text. But then Jesus goes on, and he corrects some errors, not only about worship and purity, but also about ministry. And he begins that in verse 24, down to verse number 37. Jesus again is saying, it's not the outside that is impure, but the inside, therefore you've got to guard your heart. Well, this liberates Jesus and his apostles and the church that follows to get among those who do not observe Jewish traditions or ceremonial law. And he does that first, beginning in verse 24, by going up to the region of Tyre. And there he meets a Syrophoenician woman, a pagan Gentile, who has heard of Jesus. And she brings the case to him of her daughter, who is demon-possessed. And Jesus exercises the demon from the little girl. He gives her great grace. Now, Jesus was sent in this time era only to Israel, but he previews the mission and the missionary effort to the Gentile world here in this text. He tests her faith a little bit by calling her a puppy and saying, you all are puppies. We need to feed the children first, and then the puppies can have what's later. But then she responds with persistent faith, and she says, but Lord, even puppies eat the crumbs that come from the table. I'm just asking for a crumb from the Jewish table is all. Well, he's testing her faith. She's polytheistic, and he wants to narrow her faith to him and him alone, and she comes through with faith in him and him alone. And so he heals the daughter because of her faith. But then he goes on and continues traveling uh, through the area and goes back to Decapolis. Now, do you remember Decapolis? Not that you've ever been there, but uh, Decapolis was a region of 10 cities where Jesus visited in Mark 5 when he purged and cleansed the Gadarene demoniac of all the demons and ruined the hog farmer's hog operation. And Jesus told him to go back to his friends and tell them what great things the Lord had done for him and how he'd had compassion on him. And he returns to that place there, Jesus does, and he has a harvest with this man. That man laid the groundwork for him, and Jesus has a harvest, beginning in verse 31. And Jesus here looks to heaven for power. And Jesus has a sigh and a burden and compassion on his heart for this man. He says the word and heals the man from verse 31 to verse number 37. Well, friends, here's something that Jesus did here in this text. He clarified that there are some things that take precedence over human religious traditions, human opinions, and human views. And so when the Pharisees confronted Jesus with their traditions, he exposed how their traditions made them disobedient to God. Now don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean every tradition does. But in these circumstances, that is precisely what happened. And we can obey Christ when we keep human views and human opinions and human traditions at bay in their place under other things that take precedence with God. So the question is, what takes precedence over human views, human opinions, and human traditions? What does? What does God prioritize over human views, human traditions, and human opinions? There are at least three things in the text. One, God prioritizes biblical authority. In Washington, D.C., there is the National Bureau of Standards, and there you find the legal measure of an inch, and you find the legal measure of a gallon, and you find there in the National Bureau of Standards a legal measurement of a pint, 
of an inch, of a yard, of a foot. And all other measurements throughout the United States must conform to that measurement or there can be serious trouble with the law. That happens to be the standard of all of those who are in the business of measuring things. And those things in the economy that depend upon measurements of inches, of yards, of foot, of gallons, of pints, have got to conform to this standard. Now let me ask you, what is our standard? Who is the standard for the Christian life, the Christian church, Christian purity, Christian ministry, and Christian worship? None other than Jesus Christ. So let us look at what He did when dealing with these issues. Chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. He answered and said to them something from Isaiah. He quoted the word, verse 10, something from Moses out of the book of Exodus and even the book of Deuteronomy. When Jesus was making decisions and teaching on these issues, Jesus turned to the word of God. And if the word of God was sufficient for Jesus and took precedence over centuries-old tradition and views and opinions, then it must so with the serious Christian today. The Word of God is supreme and superior in authority. Now, of course, to accept God's authority in His Word, you've got to come to two fundamental convictions in life. Number one, there's only one God, and number two, you and I are not Him. When we set aside the Word of God to observe a tradition and impose it and neglect or contradict the Word of God, we are in the dangerous position of being God. So can I encourage you to do something when considering ministry? When developing opinion about not only ministry but purity and worship? Would you first study everything from Genesis to Revelation before imposing it or suggesting it to anyone? You mean look at the whole Bible? You bet. If you give one hour a day to reading the Bible, you can read every word in 90 days. Well, I would have to become a Bible scholar. Exactly. And if you don't know what the Word of God says about ministry, purity, or worship, why would you want to impose your view on other people? Are you willing to take that risk of perhaps being a stumbling block in keeping people from the truth of the Word of God? Do you want to take that risk? The Pharisees and Sadducees did. Israel often did. It led to their exile and their destruction in A.D. 70. Somebody might say, I don't have the time. I remember talking to a woman one time about a religious group that believed all people are gods and they will populate planets later and did not believe Jesus Christ was the unique, exalted Son of God, believed that they were saved by works. She had a dear friend that she respected. And I said, have you ever witnessed to her? And here's how she replied. She said, I don't know enough about my faith to tell someone else that theirs is wrong. And she had been in church since infancy. It was more than 60 years old. And I said, well, what have you been doing with your time? Human opinions, views, and traditions might help and might strengthen us. But as long as they do not supplant and discourage obedience to the Word of God. So that's the first priority. God sets biblical authority 
over human traditions, opinions, and views. But there's a second thing. He sets total purity and internal purity over human traditions and views and opinions. I was pastoring a church one time in another state, and I had a lot of folks ask me if we could rearrange the bulletin to make it easy for folks to take notes on the sermon. Surprised me that they even wanted to do that with my messages, but I said, sure. But the only way we could do that was to change the design of it. And on the front cover, there happened to be an inadequate picture of the church building on the front. And it was usually, oftentimes, the punchline to jokes in our church. And so I decided, well, let's remove the thing. And we will put the other items starting on the front page. We'll turn the bulletin into something more of a newsletter. And we will leave room on one page for sermon notes. And I will type an outline and place it there. Someone got word in a Sunday school class that I had decided to do that. And so instead of studying the Sunday school lesson, they came to my office during Sunday school and hauled me into for court session in this lady's Sunday school class. I have never seen that bunch of, uh, well, those ladies so enthused and intense about anything the entire time I'd been their pastor. And I'd had a marvelous pastorate there. Oh, it was a lovely place. I'd been terribly discouraged in my first one, and they restored my faith. But once I messed with their silly picture on the front of the bulletin for ministry purposes, I was called on the carpet. Well, we changed it anyway. We waited a little bit, kept talking about it, and changed it anyway. And it worked out real well. But a while later, some in that same group criticized deacons and myself when we communicated to another deacon that he could not serve as a deacon and commit adultery and ruin someone else's marriage. So do you hear what I'm saying? They were intense about something God never said, and they opposed what He did say about purity. Ladies and gentlemen, that is grotesque moral confusion. Jesus wants something different. There is a kind of purity that impresses, but it is incomplete. It does the right actions, it avoids the wrong behaviors, it serves, it gives, it attends. It does the right actions, avoids the wrong behavior, but the heart is full of gossip, bitterness, distortion, pride, anger, lust, and covetousness. It is outwardly impressive, but inside full of dead men's bones. It's enough purity to stay out of trouble and scandal, but not clean enough to enjoy the power of the Holy Spirit and to emulate the Spirit of Christ. And that is why we've got to be very, very careful that we constantly and frequently clarify that baptism and the Lord's Supper and other religious observances are not enough to make us right with God. Nothing physical touches the salvation and the eternal and the spiritual. 
Going through baptism and the Lord's Supper and observing religious practices is not enough to make us right with God. It takes faith which ignites internal transformation. That's why Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's more than mental agreement, which I hope is a good starting point, and it is a good starting point, and I hope you're there. But it takes a heart commitment and surrender and trust to Him to be saved. That's the only hope. God elevates total purity above human traditions, opinions, and views, and biblical authority. But there's a third thing, and that is outreach ministry. God prioritizes outreach ministry above human concepts, traditions, and opinions. Heard of a middle-aged man that came to Christ. And soon after, he began to notice a great servant spirit and desire and zeal in his heart and soul. And he would help just about anybody that needed help, even at his own expense and to his own inconvenience. One time, a young lady in the church had her car broke down on the side of the road. And uh, the man found out. She went to pick her up. It was late at night. He carried her home with a friend and left his pickup truck there while his friend drove him back home. And the next day he would go on and repair her car and get it there. But overnight, he left his truck in the driveway of this young lady's home. Well, the neighborhood gossip, who happened to be a member of the church, got up in the morning and saw his truck there early in the morning. And she added two plus two, and she got ten. And she began to spread it about. And word got back to him that she was accusing him and her of things that were not true. And so the next night, he parked his truck in front of her house. (laughs) God is not mocked, is He? When I was in college, I got word that a man from Houston needed help. I was up in Marshall, Texas as a college student. And I met with the man, let him stay at my place. Don't do that. If you're brainless in college, go ahead, but otherwise don't do it. But I listened to his story, and his wife was mentally ill. She left Houston and just departed, afraid of something. At home, she'd done that before, and he was trying to find her. Wasn't getting a lot of help. He asked a missionary in town for help. He wouldn't help him. And the man really didn't cost me anything, and it really wasn't much of a burden. Gave him a ride here and there, and he took care of things. But it was Sunday, and I decided to take him to church that evening. But on the way to church that evening, I stopped by the home of someone else to pick him up someone on our church staff. And I walked up to the door with the man, and the man was a rather large man. He wore a button-up shirt that was untucked and very modest clothing. He had long hair and kept it in a ponytail. And I came up to the home there to pick up this staff member of ours. And he opened the door with a jump as soon as he saw the man. I introduced him, explained the situation. We got in my car, and I drove both of them to church. And from there to the 20-minute drive out to church, he confronted this man about his long hair. Now, he looked a little rough, 
He did. He, uh, he really did. But he was very kind. And it was very obvious that he had a very intense affection for his mentally ill wife and wasn't going to leave. He chased that poor woman all over Texas to find her when she struggled and wouldn't take her medication. We got to church. We went through the service. I carried both of them back home. I dropped him off. I came back to my friend's house and talked with him about the experience. And here's what he told me. He said, don't you ever bring someone like that to my home ever again. I didn't. The man from Houston called me later, told me that he found his wife. I congratulated him and celebrated that with him over the phone. Encouraged him, listened to him some more. And the thing that impressed me is that this poor, modest family and marriage, going through so many difficulties, was fueled by the undying love of a man who was suffering with a mentally ill wife. The staff member of ours since then has been married and divorced twice. But he's never had a man with long hair on his property again. And sometimes I wonder if maybe God sent that man from Houston up our way to teach us something about undying love and marriage. I don't know. But I sure did learn something that day. Not that it's hard being married to you. I want you to know. (laughs) She's made it quite easy. But here in this text, Jesus previewed His church's outreach to the Gentiles. And in that, He previewed that we are to overcome anything that is a barrier to ministry except Scripture. And the only boundary God places on ministry is His Word. No human tradition, no human opinion, no human view is sufficient to supplant the Word of God. And if the Bible is wide open on these issues, we are to be wide open as well. And that's good news for you, by the way. Are there others placing limitations on you and keeping you from Christ? Are you doing that? Your sins, as embarrassing as they are, are not a barrier to the grace of God. If you'll humble yourself and repent, you'll find grace. Your past is not enough to keep you from Christ. Only if you let it. Others' criticism, poor religious and disappointing religious experiences in the past, they are not enough. You have a God whose only boundaries to you are found in His Word, and all He says is repent and believe the gospel. All you need is repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can be made right with Him and enjoy a standing before Him that is identical to that of His Son. And God is willing... Folks, God is giving this away for free. And He wants to do that with you today. That's the only barrier. If you neglect it, you'll lock yourself in to your own performance and behavior. And how disappointing and unstable is that? That's as unstable as water. Reminds me of the fellow that went to the convenience store to load up with gas. He put his gas cap on top of his car and left without replacing it and lost it. 
He got home and realized it and decided he'd go back and look for it and assumed probably there were a lot of other gas caps along that way because others probably lost their gas cap near that same convenience store. And he got there and he found a substitute. He told his wife all about it when he got home. He said, yes, I found one that fits perfectly, only this one better is better. It locks. God's original plan of salvation is far superior than anything you can find as a substitute and make no mistake about it, the world, the flesh, and the devil are always using religion to give you a substitute. And you'll be locked in forever unless you repudiate that and come to a God who loves you before whom you can be embarrassed, before whom you can expose all your shame, A God who loves you so much, He calls His Son the Savior. And that's what He wants to be for you. If you will turn aside anything that keeps you from Jesus Christ today and trust and rely only on Him for grace and heaven and forgiveness, He will take you. Let's pray about it. Dear God, I want to praise you because you have your priorities straight. And Lord, it's abundantly clear you're not confused and you're not silly and misguided. You know the difference between what is essential and what is tertiary. Some do not. They hope and trust in human words and human opinions, human views, even some religious traditions. So that they have a religion that only does what humans can do and that is fail God I pray for grace today to deal with the shock of this announcement from Mark 7 and to set aside all that prevents them from trusting the grace of Christ would you do that now let me ask you have you ever moved from one place to another to get something Walk across the room to get a remote control. Walk into the kitchen for a glass of water. We're going to ask you to walk down this aisle to talk to a staff member about getting right with God by grace through faith. Would you do that today? Staff members will be standing here, and we're going to invite you to come. Would you quickly stand with me, please? And would you respond? Come now, and come on. You can come. Even you, you can come. Don't doubt. Don't delay. Let's sing together. I am-